The time is now. Volume 3, Episode 38. This is Employment Law Now. I am Mike Schmidt, your host, the Vice Chair of Labor and Employment from Cozen O'Connor. I hope all is great with all of you. Uh, For my northern listeners and colleagues, particularly those in the northern Midwest, I hope everybody is safe and okay with this crazy winter weather uh, as we are releasing this podcast at the end of January 2019. Hopefully you are all somewhere warm to listen to this new episode, which I hope is a good one. Um, I will be talking about and talking with one of my colleagues um, about what employers should be thinking about when it comes to employee marijuana use. But before I get there, I want to update you on a couple of significant developments with the National Labor Relations Board, the NLRB. So this is my DC update segment, my DC update now segment. Um, we are back to the NLRB. It seems like we can never get away from them too, uh, for too long. Um, but uh, perhaps we have turned a corner in terms of employer reaction when they hear that the NLRB has done something. For the past few years when the NLRB uh, did anything, employers were sort of like this. But maybe now, in 2019, employers may just be like this when they hear from the NLRB. So there are two significant developments that I think impact um, employers that I just want to bring to your attention. First, the NLRB may have made it easier to classify workers as independent contractors for purposes of federal law, and specifically the NLRA, the National Labor Relations Act. In a franchisee case entitled Super Shuttle DFW, for those keeping score at home, The NLRB overturned uh, an Obama-era decision from 2014 and brought back a more balanced test, a more balanced independent contractor test that gives equal weight now to, on the one hand, how much control is being asserted over the individual versus, on the other hand, the worker's entrepreneurship in operating his or her own business. So Obama seemed to, or at least the Obama administration, seemed to put far more weight Um, on the entrepreneurship and was the individual operating his or her own business. And now uh, the NLRB has overturned that and gone back to a more balanced test where it's weighing all of the relevant factors uh, equally. So in this case, uh, the NLRB uh, found that the fact that drivers at issue, and this was involving drivers, the fact that the drivers at issue did not have their own distinct business uh, or did not have their own unique skill set 
uh, was outweighed by other factors showing very minimal supervision and minimal control. So this entrepreneurship um, was given far more, less weight when you looked at all of these other factors uh, with the evidence showing that there was virtually no supervision, virtually no overall control asserted over these individuals. Therefore, we're going to use that independent contractor test. Uh, it's, it's critical and certainly critical for purposes of the NLRA because uh, individuals who are deemed to be independent contractors cannot unionize, and so they're not going to have the same protections uh, under the NLRA. But, and I do uh, put this as a very big but, this is just the NLRB speaking. Like I've been saying on so many episodes, the problem we've been having the last few years in employment law is that you have all kinds of different tests from all different agencies and courts and and executive action. So there are federal statutes and common law tests that still apply in other circumstances not related to the NLRA when it comes to classifying someone as an independent contractor that your company needs to be aware of. Um, there are other states, for example, that use the ABC test. We talked about it uh, recently coming into play in California, but other states, such as Massachusetts, have very strict ABC tests uh, to determine whether someone is an independent contractor or not, and those tests seem to favor a classification of employee and not independent contractor. So, again, while the NLRB seems to have made it easier to classify individuals as independent contractors for purposes of their law and their their jurisdiction, you can't just stop there in the analysis. And whatever your particular issue is in whatever jurisdiction you are operating in, you need to be aware of what the relevant and applicable test or tests, plural, are uh, for your fact pattern. The second significant NLRB development that you should know about um, deals with the concept of protected concerted activity. And hey, over the three years of this podcast, we've talked a lot about protected concerted activity, uh, and I've talked to you about the analysis that I think companies should engage in, for example, with social media, when the employer believes that the employee has said something or has engaged in some conduct, conduct that you find offensive. Uh, that you want to discipline the employee over or maybe even outright terminate him or her. And I've talked about the three-step analysis that I think you should go through as opposed to just being trigger-happy and disciplining or terminating the employee simply because you find the statement or conduct to be offensive. I've told you you need to look at whether the conduct is concerted, whether there's two or more people, essentially. Then step two, whether the concerted activity is protected because it falls under the types of things regulated by the NLRA, whether it's conversations about wages and hours or the terms and conditions uh, of the workplace or of uh, work. And then once you get past those two steps, you then take the third step and you ask the question of, well, was the employee's conduct so reckless, so egregious that we're going to take it out of the protection of the NLRA, even if you found that it was concerted and it was protected. Well, you have the NLRB just coming out recently with a very significant uh, issue on this concerted factor, dealing with individual gripes. Because we have also said, and uh, there have been a fair number of cases which specify that you know individual gripes, if that's all we're dealing with, does not rise to the level of being concerted activity, therefore it's not going to be protected as concerted, uh, as protected concerted activity under the NLRA. So, for those of you keeping score at home, in a case called Allstate Maintenance, 
the NLRB just recently clarified this concerted element and held, very interestingly, that individual gripes are still individualized. In other words, they are not going to be covered and protected. And they do not become concerted, even if they are made in a group setting. So it clarified the applicable standard here. Individual action or an individual comment is only going to be concerted if the individual is going to management with group complaints or if the individual is trying to solicit or instigate group activity. Here there was no evidence that the individual making a comment, even though the comment um, pertained to a working condition that applied to a group of people, there was no evidence in this case that the individual making the comment to a supervisor was acting on behalf of or had discussed the issue with a larger group or that the individual was seeking to bring in a larger group into the activity. Therefore, even though it arguably pertained to a working condition that could affect a group of people, here this was deemed to be simply an individual gripe. The takeaway, however, is still continue to tread carefully in your analysis of these three factors that I've gone through, but the winds of this NLRB uh, from an administrative standpoint continue to blow much more favorably for employers. So that brings us to our guest now segment, our guest now segment, and if you are high on the NLRB right now based on these recent decisions, uh, you are very likely to be high on marijuana as well. So now we move to our Guest Now segment. And back on May 10th of 2018, and uh, for those of you who keep a list at home or right by your desk of all of my episodes, it was Volume 2, Episode 32. I did what was referenced back then to be Part 1 of a two-part discussion on marijuana use by employees and the regulation of marijuana in the workplace. Back in that Episode 32, I presented a roundtable discussion pertaining really to the background of this issue, the politics of marijuana regulation, and I promised part two was going to talk about a little bit more of the practical impact of this issue on employers. I had every intention of bringing part two of that series to you last year, right after that part one, and in fact, I did record it with my next guest. However, due to some very significant technical difficulties, as they say in the trade, uh, that recording never came to pass, and I wasn't able to present it to you. But now, here I am, new year, new energy, I am back to try it again. So, with me today, to talk again about what employers should be thinking about with employee marijuana use, is my partner, David Barron, who is in my firm's labor and employment department with me, and he is resident in our Houston, Texas office. David, great to have you with us today. Good to be here. Thank you so much. I know uh, we promised everybody we'd be doing this uh, last year in 2018, and due to some technical difficulties, which apparently took months to resolve, uh, we are finally here in the start of 2019. But I really appreciate you taking some time to hopefully educate uh, the listeners uh, on a real critical issue here. 
yeah, there's a lot going on in this area. Absolutely. So let's start off with uh, sort of the source of uh, all of this lot that's going on. Um, and for employers who are trying to figure out where to turn to determine what employees are permitted to do and what their companies are permitted to do, is this really a federal issue or is it a state issue? Well, it's both, of course. Uh, nothing's ever simple. So, you know, from a federal standpoint, obviously, uh, marijuana is still an illegal Schedule One substance. So from that standpoint, the federal law is somewhat straightforward in that it's just illegal. Uh, of course, th that law is not being enforced consistently across the country because we have a lot of states who have passed laws allowing uh, marijuana use either for medical purposes or in, or in some cases just flat out recreational purposes making it the basically the equivalent of, of buying alcohol so uh, it's really turning into a state-by-state -state issue which which is really complicating matters for companies and HR departments uh, no question and before I get to the state I just want to close the loop sort of on the federal side of it has there been a shift in federal policy from what used to be the position taken by the Obama administration to what has been the position of the current Trump administration well, like most issues in the Trump administration, it, it sort of changes from day to day and from uh, person to person. <laughs> that's, a whole separate, that's a whole separate podcast <laughs> Right. So uh, under the Obama administration, it was pretty clear. In fact, they issued a memorandum from the Justice Department advising the uh, U.S. attorneys in the various districts to basically stand down on enforcing, um, you know, the 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 law against marijuana possession in states where it was legalized. And of course, that was only to the extent the possession was consistent with the state statute. So for example, if you were trafficking a large volume of marijuana across Colorado or California, that would still be unlawful and you'd be you know, subject to federal prosecution. But if you had a you know possession of, a, of an amount, a small amount of marijuana that was allowed and consistent with the state law, then theoretically under the Obama administration you would be exempt from prosecution under federal law. Um, when Trump came in, um, and obviously Jeff Sessions was the first attorney general who is very well known for being um, aggressive and anti-marijuana, uh, rescinded that policy. So as a, as a matter of, of policy, it, there was a change, but as a matter of practical effect, nothing really did change. So uh, now Jeff Sessions is gone. We have an interim AG. We don't know who. Uh, we, we assume uh, uh, the next one will be uh, affirmed. But so far, as a practical matter, the Trump administration has basically treated the same as the Obama administration. And certainly uh, the federal government and those in Washington have a, a laundry list of things uh, to take care of and try to resolve, and I don't know how high up on their priority list uh, this issue is. Right. They they're clearly have bigger fish to fry and, and other things they're working on. I, I will say, though, now with... Um, you know, with that, the House being taken over by Democrats, there's certainly more folks who are looking to, you know, maybe rescind that Schedule One classification of marijuana or do something that would bring the law, the federal law, in, in you know, uh, basically uh, consistent with the application, which is it's weird right now where you have the practical application different than the law. And I think there's a lot of folks now in Congress who'd probably like to fix that at some point. Well, no, that's that's helpful. So let's go. You had mentioned uh, there's really the two sides of this coin: the federal side and the state side. Let's talk about the state front. Where do you see things trending at the moment on this marijuana issue? So the trend is clearly towards legalization. I, I don't think there's any doubt about that. If, if you look at the map, uh, you know, obviously we're, we're, we don't have a visual presentation here, but imagine a map with the states colored in 
that have some sort of uh, you know marijuana uh, law allowing marijuana, and basically the entire map would be covered in at this point. There's about five states that that had absolutely no allowance for marijuana, and those are few and far between. Even you know Texas, which is a very very conservative state, does have a limited medical marijuana use. So, and and the states that are allowing recreational use, which is you know right now the most um, liberal um, policy, you know ha- have been increasing. And you have some big states like California, um, Michigan, just just voted to allow um, recreational use. We have Utah in this last year that allowed just voted to allow medical use. We have and putting aside the United States, Canada just allowed just voted to allow um, recreational use. So, you know, when you have the entire country of Canada and some very large states on the west coast and the east coast and Colorado in the middle. Um, it's it, there's just clearly a trend towards legalization, which is really fascinating because it's not as I think some people would think just the you know progressive liberal states who are legalizing marijuana, but as you point out, some of the very conservative jurisdictions are are doing that as well. Yeah, I mean Oklahoma, you know, again a very conservative state, but also a very uh, agricultural state, and there's big money in uh, marijuana or cannabis now, and I think you know that's really been the tipping point is this realization, you know, obviously on the left they they from a public policy standpoint in favor typically of marijuana, but on the right there's a lot of money and uh, there's a lot of big business interests jumping into marijuana. I mean, you read a story almost every day about um, you know some celebrity or big business that's getting into uh, you know selling marijuana or marijuana infused beers, and, and it, we're just going to have an entire industry that's that's going to jump up around this. And whatever the you know the reason for the trend, and and you you highlighted a couple of them, whether it's sort of public policy, whether it's um, really being moved by money and finances, um, are there differences? in the position between marijuana use for medical purposes and marijuana for recreational purposes? Right, so it depends on the state. And, uh, you know, for example, in California, it's it's recreational, so you can go buy it basically in a retail type of environment. Um, same thing in Colorado. Uh, in other states, you have to have, for example, a prescription, so you'd have to have some sort of medical condition that would um, uh, uh, permit you to lawfully buy marijuana. And I'm sure we'll, we'll talk in a minute. From the employment context, the medical marijuana states pose special problems because the, the marijuana use is really tied to a medical condition, which of course opens up ADA issues, FMLA issues, and all sorts of things. Um, yeah, no, no question about it. And before we get to the practical kind of questions that you touched on, um, to me the real interesting question uh, to people who are really focused on this concept of state legalization of marijuana use is this. So as you said right at the beginning, marijuana is still officially an illegal substance that's criminalized under the Federal Controlled Substance Act. So how can employees be permitted, on the one hand, to use marijuana under state laws when they're still violating federal criminal law? Yeah, it's a real problem for HR departments and companies to draft policies when, you know, the law is different from between state and federal. So, for example, um, if you're covered by Department of Transportation regulations, if you have drivers, <clears throat> well, under federal law, you're required to drug test. Whereas in that particular state, employees might be allowed to lawfully go out and purchase recreational marijuana. So you have that friction there. Um, Under the Americans with Disabilities Act, marijuana is a Schedule I drug. Illegal, current illegal drug users are not covered under the ADA, so therefore they're not protected under the ADA. But they might have protection under a state 
disability law. So you have to look at what's the state law, and then you have to look at what's the federal law, and typically whichever one is the most liberal pro-employee um, would apply. But again, there are exceptions. You know, again, so most of the state laws don't trump, for example, DOT. So you know, just because someone is allowed to do recreational marijuana in California doesn't mean that they can, you know, uh, drive a truck under the influence of marijuana. So there's there's lots of different nuances to this. And this all assumes, of course, that the federal government position is going to remain sort of hands offish uh, and not go after um, actively or affirmatively um, those who are using marijuana from a from a federal law standpoint. Right, which could all change tomorrow. Yeah, and, and it also makes this uh, extremely uh, much more difficult as well when you're dealing with multi-jurisdictional companies who, who it's not not hard enough to just look at the federal law in your particular state, but now uh, you know there may be differences um, significant or very nuanced between different states. And then you have to look at, beyond the laws, you have to just look at the public policy issues, the PR issues. You know, there's been a number of high-profile companies that have you know, had some bad press because they were in a state that was very, you know, pro-marijuana and someone doesn't get hired and makes a, you know, issue out of it and the, you know, the local news station is at your door wanting to know why you're not hiring people with, you know, serious medical conditions who just happen to use medical marijuana, which is lawful in that particular state. So uh, there's just lots of different fallout issues and, you know, sort of secondary issues that go along with, with drug testing policies right now. That's a great point. I mean, we're all so caught up with uh, advising and conforming our behavior to what the law says, but uh, it's a great reminder that employers cannot ignore the public policy and, frankly, the public relations impact uh, that their behavior uh, will, uh, will cause. Yeah, and just being able to hire employees, right? I mean, if you, if you are in an industry where, uh, you know, you can't get enough employees to pass the drug test, well, then maybe you have to change your testing policy. I mean, those are all issues that I think employers are wrestling with right now. So let's get into a couple of those uh, that you just touched on a little bit more specifically. I want to talk about, from a practical standpoint, what employers can and cannot do in the face of employee marijuana use. And I want to check off a few practical questions and get your reaction uh, for those who are listening to this discussion. So first, um, can employers discipline or even terminate employees who are using marijuana off the clock, off premises? So I think even in most of the, the more liberal states, there's still a difference between the employer being allowed to um, regulate what happens at work versus what happens outside of work. So clearly, an employer has the right to say you're not going to do marijuana or any other drugs while you're at work or on working time or in our company vehicles. Um, that is still pretty much the law everywhere. Um, so at work, it's it's really not an issue, and even the the protections and under many of the state laws preserve that right of the employer to drug test to make sure employees at work are not under the influence and those sorts of things. I think where it becomes much more difficult is the right of an employer in a state with a state uh, law protecting you know, medical marijuana, for example, to regulate what employees do outside of work. And I think that's where we're seeing the sort of the Wild West and cutting edge of litigation in these states. And notwithstanding the federal law treatment of these issues, uh, on the state level again, uh, and I guess also putting aside um, state-specific legalization statutes, would marijuana use arguably, arguably fall within the uh, legal activities laws that so many of these states have? It could. So some states have laws, as you said, which don't necessarily single out 
marijuana, but simply say, you know, an employer can't discriminate against an employee who does something on their own time, which is lawful in that state. Uh, the funny thing is, is many of those laws are very old and arose out of tobacco companies lobbying for those laws, trying to protect employees who smoked. So kind of a similar, you know, rationale here with, you know, marijuana. Uh, so yeah, those clearly could come into play. And some states even have explicit protections in their laws um, allowing medical marijuana saying things like, uh, you know, someone who's a, a medical marijuana user um, cannot be discriminated against simply on the basis that they have a card or, you know, it, are using medical marijuana um, outside of the workplace. So again, you know, let's just take the hypothetical of someone who has cancer or a serious back condition, something that is no question a disability and decides, hey, I'm going to take medical marijuana for pain management instead of hydrocodone or some sort of hard opioid. Uh, hasn't tested positive at work, no argument that the person is under the influence at work. You know, can the employer terminate that person because they find out that they're using marijuana outside the workplace? In many states, the answer to that question is going to be no. Um, under state law, even though under federal law, of course, they're not even protected under the ADA. So they, would, they wouldn't be able to sue under the ADA. There's a case out of Delaware that's sort of one of the leading cases on this with that exact same fact pattern, and the court dismissed the ADA case but is allowing the state discrimination case to proceed to trial. Yeah, it's, uh, it's fascinating where we are on this issue now and uh, how much more we still have to, uh, to go to, to sort of flesh this all out. Um, you, you, you touched on drug testing as well. How, how are these state laws um, that legalize uh, marijuana use, how are they impacting the rights of employers to drug test? It's making it more complicated because, you know, when marijuana was unquestionably an illegal substance under, you know, across the board, most employers didn't really worry about it because if you found a trace of marijuana it was a slam dunk you know just like cocaine or some other drug now you know employers are wrestling with you know how can we tell if someone is under the influence at work for example um, what is the proper thresholds and marijuana is much tougher than say alcohol which is very well established there's a lot of good science behind it um, most employers don't really struggle with figuring out whether someone is, is over the threshold of being intoxicated. But marijuana is different in terms of the science of staying in the body. So, you know, it's, it's becoming a problem trying to deal with those, again, state law issues. So is someone under the influence at work, or is this simply the fact that someone, you know, lawfully used medical marijuana over the weekend um, and is, is, is not under the influence and are you now running afoul of the state law that says you can't discriminate against somebody for lawful use outside the workplace? And those those thresholds and lines are, are tough and in many, in many cases are not very well established and, and certainly are being litigated right now. No question. Um, and another area that uh, employers are, are trying to figure out whether this has uh, any impact is in the area of unemployment insurance. You know, m most if not all um, of the unemployment insurance laws uh, preclude an employee from getting unemployment insurance if they've engaged in misconduct, and there's all variations of, of that term. Um, so what about, you know, state laws, again, that are, are legalizing the use of marijuana? Um, how are those state laws impacting the unemployment insurance entitlement? Yeah, it's, a, again, very different from state to state, and I, I would say it's basically a mixed bag, but to the extent you can draw a bright line, it would be this. Typically, if someone fails a drug test, um, is under the influence at work, 
um, you know, violating a drug and alcohol policy while at work, typically they would be disqualified from unemployment. Where you have an employee who uh, is not, you know, arguably, at least in their view, arguing that they're not under the influence at work, they haven't done anything at work, and they're being penalized for lawful off-duty drug use in a state where that's permitted, um, there are a number of states that have granted unemployment in those cases. So again, it goes back perhaps to your line before about uh, off-the-clock, uh, off-premises use versus the impact, if any, that it's having on the individual's work performance. Yeah, for sure. Um, all right, and and again, I guess the last uh, sort of practical question I just want to touch on. You also mentioned the ADA several times here, and the the FMLA on the federal level plays into um, accommodations and, and leave requirements to some extent. How do these state laws impact obligations under the ADA, under the FMLA? Might employers have to reasonably accommodate employees now by allowing them to actually use marijuana? I think under many state laws, the answer to that is probably going to be yes. Again, under federal law, as it currently stands, a uh, marijuana user would be a user of an illegal drug and would not be entitled to anything under the ADA in terms of an accommodation or job protection. That's, a, that's one to watch, though, because, again, that's, that's so far what the federal courts have said. Congress could change that tomorrow, obviously, if they changed the law and, and removed uh, marijuana from a Schedule One uh, substance, then that would open up the door for ADA uh, obligations here. But even if there are no ADA obligations, there are, in many, many states, um, state anti-discrimination laws that would require potentially an accommodation. And this is where it gets hard as a practical matter. Again, if, if, if your policy would be that someone who came to you and said, uh, I've got this serious medical condition and um, I'm taking some sort of, uh, you know, a- pain medication, just letting you know, um, you probably wouldn't fire that individual, right? If it doesn't interfere with their ability to do the job. And, you know, that would be an accommodation that you would probably make for that employee. Why would you have a different result if they come to you and say, instead of taking, you know, some sort of opioid, I'm taking medical marijuana. It doesn't interfere with my ability to do the job. My doctor has prescribed it and has said, you know, that this is the proper dosage, et cetera, et cetera. You know, those two cases start to look a lot alike and in the eyes of a jury in a state where marijuana is legal and again you start you starting to get into public policy issues is that a case you really want to try um, you know a lot of companies are moving towards at least considering reasonable accommodations for individuals in those instances of course if they're driving a truck or doing something that's safety sensitive that's a whole other thing but you know you probably wouldn't let them drive a forklift if they were on an opioid either right so there's a lot of arguments to be made that you should effectively treat those situations effectively the same, and you wouldn't treat someone taking medical marijuana differently than someone who's taking some sort of other hard pain medication. Sure, and the difference is today there's probably still the different stigma attached to the marijuana use um, as opposed to the opioid use or, or some other prescription drug, um, but you know, effectively and, and perhaps legally, as you say, there, there may not be any difference in terms of how you have to treat the situations. Right. I think that's exactly right. And I think it's, it may be even flipping the other way where, you know, you're going to argue that it's safer safer in some cases for someone to be taking medical marijuana than some sort of uh, opioid. Yeah, and the other interesting thing that uh, you touched on as well is, is the exclusion under the ADA uh, for the illegal drug user, while not necessarily uh, directed solely at marijuana use, that it was certainly enacted long before we are where we are now, where, uh, the, you know, the trend does seem to be, as you say, 
say uh, toward legalizing marijuana use and um, f determining that there may be at least medical reasons why uh, marijuana uh, may uh, need to be used by employees. Yeah. And I think the other interesting issue for employers to keep just keep an eye on is the fact that in many of these states that have medical marijuana statutes, the fact that this person is using marijuana may be a proxy for a disability. So, again, you know, employers can't ask about disabilities and those kinds of things, can't question employees. So, you know, questioning someone about why they're taking medical marijuana opens up the door to, you know, the gateway into their disability. So, um, you know, that's something to just be aware of is that that inquiry and that line of questioning often will lead to that employee talking about their medical conditions, which, of course, is something that you have to be very careful with. No question. Um, and, Dave, this, is, uh, this has been so unbelievably helpful. We could spend uh, far more than 21 minutes talking about these issues, and I suspect uh, we will be doing that uh, in the coming months and in the next, coming, uh, next couple of years. Um, what kind of bottom line takeaway would you leave us with? Where do you see things going here? And, you know, any last thoughts on the issue? Well, I think, you know, again, especially for employers who have multi-state operations, it's more critical than ever to be aware of the laws in each of the states in which they operate. Um, think about, from a, from a company standpoint, do you want to have a different rule in every state? Do you want to try to, you know, uh, have a more consistent drug testing policy across those states? That's really where most of my clients are wrestling with these issues and trying to figure out, you know, how do we, how do we come up with something that's going to work? in enough places so that our HR departments and managers aren't pulling out their hair and trying to worry about, you know, if, if, I, if I work in this office, there's one rule, and if I go work over in that office, there's another rule. And I think that's, that's really the challenge that faces companies and HR people in, in, in 2019 and going forward. That's great. Thank you so much, Dave. David Barron, uh, one of my esteemed partners uh, out of our Houston office here at Cozen O'Connor. Really appreciate uh, the help with all of this. Thanks for the opportunity to be on the podcast. Absolutely. Well, I hope that was informative and uh, helpful to you. I really want to thank you, as always, uh, for listening and for being a devoted listener to this Employment Law Now podcast. We've got a whole host of episodes planned for the coming months that I'm really excited about that I think will really help you and help your companies. Um, Traverse through, uh, traverse through the weeds of uh, labor and employment law. Two very special episodes that I want to point out that are coming up. Um, we celebrate our third anniversary of the podcast next week. Would you believe that? February 2017 was our very first episode. We begin our third year of this, uh, so uh, we are going to proceed with a very special episode. And then right after that, uh, I'm going to be having a special Valentine's Day edition where I will be talking about, how appropriate of course, Valentine's Day love contracts. No, I'm not. Valentine's Day love contracts and a very special episode of Employment Law Now in a couple of weeks right for Valentine's Day. But that is all the time we have for this episode. Thank you so much, and until the next time, I hope all of your labor is productive.